So, good evening. I'd like to wish you all a happy solstice. We are in the uh, middle of the solar year, the time when the earth tilts. Uh, the word solstice comes from two words I just found out, from the word sol, which means sun, and ister, which means to tilt and to come to a, come to a standstill. So the rotation of the Earth is at a standstill between the North Pole and the South Pole. And so the blessing that we have today is we have the fullness of light. It's the time of abundance. It's a time that was celebrated in many cultures for um, the, the harvesting of crops, the, the fullness of life associated with fertility and abundance and celebration and joy. And it's a beautiful time of year. We have, we've been blessed with this beautiful sunlight this week. So I hope you're enjoying it. I want to read a poem by Mary Oliver called The Sun in honor of the solstice. Have you ever seen anything in your life more wonderful than the way the sun, every evening, relaxed and easy, floats towards the horizon, and into the clouds or the hills or the rumpled sea, and is gone, and how it slides again out of the blackness every morning, on the other side of the world, like a red flower, streaming upward on its heavenly oils, say on a, on a morning in early summer, at its perfect imperial distance. And have you ever felt for anything such wild love? Do you think there is anywhere in any language a world a word billowing enough for the pleasure that fills you as the sun reaches out, as it warms you, as you stand there empty-handed? Or have you too turned from this world? Or have you too gone crazy for power or for things? Even after all this time, oops, that's another poem. <laughs> Is that a poem? <laughs> Nothing like killing a punchline. <laughs> Oh, well. You'd have to wait for that one. I also learned from uh, Donald Rothberg that uh, in the Celtic culture that the, the moon, the, the, the moon, the, the solstice moon was known as the honeymoon. And in Celtic cultures and other cultures um, it was a time for marriage and the married couple would uh, eat honey or, honey, or drink honey mead at the ceremony and, and for the full calendar month. Hence, we have honeymoon. So, so here we are giving ourselves our own, hopefully, taste of honey, the sweetness of our practice, the sweetness of the silence here, the sweetness of our days together. So we've been teaching over the days the centrality of mindfulness practice, the importance of this fundamental quality of awareness, cultivation of a moment-by-moment -moment attentiveness to your experience in the sitting, the walking, and asana practice. But as you know, in, in not just in practice, but in our life, demands many other qualities from us than simply being attentive. And so, the Buddha responded to that in his teaching by um, t 
teaching and encouraging and giving practices for the cultivation of many different qualities. And it said the Buddha himself and any Buddha that appears, uh, they are the fullest expression of human potential. So they're not just wise and awake, but they've also developed the full range of human qualities that's possible. And so in some ways, the, uh, many of the teachings and the lists and the practices that the Buddha taught were to develop the fullness of our human potential, the fullness of our capacity. So for instance, one teaching um, where the Buddha talked about cultivating of the paramis, the perfections, many different qualities of the heart, patience, cultivating generosity, cultivating wisdom, cultivating strength and perseverance, cultivating effort, cultivating tranquility. Tonight what I want to talk about is another important facet of the development or the cultivation of the fullness of our humanness by talking about the qualities, what he called the Brahma-viharas, the divine abodes of the heart, the qualities of love or metta, as it's known, loving-kindness, the qualities of compassion, karuna, the qualities of appreciative joy, mudita, and the quality of equanimity, upeka. And these qualities, as you both know, and I'll talk about tonight, are wonderful balancing qualities for mindfulness practice. And I want to first start talking about the quality of equanimity because it's so closely um, linked to mindfulness practice. And all of the qualities of the heart, love, love, compassion, appreciative joy, are said to be balanced and stabilized, grounded by this quality of equanimity. So the heart has the capacity to... uh, meet the world with kindness, meet unconditional, uh, meet the world unconditionally with kindness, to meet, com- to meet suffering with a certain fearless compassion, to meet success and joy with delight. And what allows these qualities to be stable is the quality of equanimity. And there's a story that I like to tell um, of, I think it's a Japanese story, of a couple of farmers who, uh, neighboring farms, and one farmer had a son and one didn't. And the farmer who had a son was a little wealthier. And one day the, the, the farmers got together and the farmer without a son said to the farmer with a son, oh, you're so lucky, you have a strong family, you have a son who's going to take over the farm, who's going to farm when you get old and you'll be taken care of. And the farmer with the son was a wise old farmer and he just responded, ah, so, ah, so. And then sometime later, uh, the farmer's son um, found a, a wild horse in the woods, brought the horse back to the farm, tamed it so they could use it for plowing the crops. And the neighbor came over Again, it said, oh, you're so lucky, you have a son, now he's found you a horse, now you can plow the crops more easily, and your back doesn't have to hurt so much, and oh, you're so lucky. And, 
And uh, the wise poem said, ah, so, ah, so, we'll see. And then sometime later, the farmer's son was out riding the horse in the woods and the horse got startled and uh, the son fell off and uh, broke his ankle. Hobbled back to the farm and the neighbor got to hear about it. And the, the neighbor came up, oh, I'm so sorry, your son fell off the horse. Now his ankle's broken, you can't, he can't do the crops and he can't help you and he's going to be a burden and what are you going to do and this is so terrible. And, and the wise farmer said, ah, so, we'll see, ah, so. And then later, uh, later, a little while later, uh, the, um, the military uh, recruitment folks came around um, enforcing uh, young men into the armed services and because the, the farmer's son was injured and had a broken ankle, of course, they didn't want to conscript him, so they went on to other villages. And the neighbor got to hear about it, came over, oh, you're so lucky your son had a broken ankle because then he didn't go into the army, and now he can stay around and help you sow the crops. And, blah, blah, blah. and the farmer said, ah, so, ah, so. So I love that story because it just speaks to that quality of Equanimity that we that we you know we meet each circumstance as it is, but we never quite know. We never quite know uh, what's going to unfold, and can we meet that uncertainty with a quality of steadiness? So equanimity has um, it's the knowing of the joys and the sorrows of this world that Anna was talking about. It's the knowing that we have these winds that blow through our lives of pain and pleasure, gain and loss, praise and blame. It's also, also the knowing, and this is where it relates to the other Brahma-viharas, uh, which are practices which, which really wish for the, the welfare of others. Um, it's the knowing that no matter how much we care for somebody or wish for somebody, wish for their happiness and their well-being, that their life is out of our control. That the, the, the people will live according to uh, the fruition of their karma, the fruition of their actions. That we're all heirs of our own actions. And so no matter what we wish for somebody, um, there's a certain lawfulness of how things will unfold. It's also what allows us to let go in the face of difficult circumstances. I was recently visiting some friends up in <clears throat> up in Victoria in BC, and um, my friend's daughter had just uh, left home, had just gone to uh, university, and she was back for the summer. And she'd uh, met a, uh, a young man. She was in a relationship with. It was the first relationship. The, all, all, her, all her three daughters left at the same time, so it was a big big letting go for her and this was the first real boyfriend that um, had entered the family and so that was a big transition and this, a certain uh, amount of letting go but this uh, young man was really into rock climbing and so and got her daughter excited in, about rock climbing and the, the day I was there they were just going off for the first time to do a, an ascent of a 2,000 foot peak uh, not a peak but a, um, a sheer wall <laughs> And it was only her second climb, and they were, they were beginning by rappelling down from the top of the peak, down about 300 feet or further. It was a five-stage climb. 
And here she was, you know, wanting to give the blessing to her daughter of, you know, yes, go and have a great time and, you know, completely freaked out um, and having to let go. And that's, that's the letting go quality of equanimity that no matter how much she loved her daughter, she also knew she had to let it go and, and move into the world and take those risks. And So the mindfulness practice that we do here, the sitting, the walking, the staying steady through the ups and the downs is really what cultivates this quality of equanimity. It's what leads to the stability of mind, where we sit in stillness for 45 minutes and we walk and we make the commitment to stay steady and open with whatever arises, to not run out the door, to not run home, to not go down to the local uh, drugstore or food store or liquor store, or, but actually to stay steady. And, and as you've seen on retreat, in the silence, in the stillness, in meditation, all kinds of stuff blows through. Pain, sadness, joy, ecstasy, loneliness, fear, anxiety, restlessness, boredom. I mean, they sound familiar? You know, that's just the last hour. <laughs> and we, we, we practice, you know, we sit here like Buddhas, you know, and these raging storms are blowing within us. That ability to stay steady and open, that commitment is what builds this very beautiful and powerful muscle of equanimity. But it's not a quality that's detached in the loop. Sometimes equanimity has this flavor of, uh, or has this, it gives this impression of being detached. And it's said the near enemy, the, the, the mistaken the thing that's most easy to mistake for equanimity is indifference. That's a kind of a cool aloofness that doesn't really care. And as you've seen, mindfulness isn't cool in that way. It, it's a very caring responsive, attuned attention. It's about meeting things intimately. It's not about detaching and seeing them from a watchtower. It's actually being very close to your experience. So this equanimity is both both, uh, connected, but also see and is able to meet the truth of things and able to understand to to have some spaciousness around them. So I want to read a poem from my favorite poet, Ryokan, who was a Buddhist monk and hermit, spent many decades up in the mountains in Japan, and often had many long nights of, or long winters of cold, uh, only had one robe, had a sack of rice he lived on, and lived a very humble existence. And you get the sense from reading his poetry that he really understood what equanimity was. He says, The autumn nights have lengthened, and the cold has begun to penetrate my mattress. My sixtieth year is near, and yet there is no one to take pity on this weak old body. The rain has finally stopped, now just a thin stream trickles from the roof. All night the incessant cry of insects. Wide awake, unable to sleep, Leaning on my pillow, I watch the pure, right, bright rays of sunshine. So there he is, just in the stillness of the night, in the morning. And you can feel there's no resistance to, that, to, to the moment. Just meeting what is pleasant, unpleasant. So the next 
quality of Brahma Vihara I'd like to talk about is the quality of metta, or translated as loving kindness. Uh, the literal translation is friendliness or a deep friendship towards life. And again, I don't want to present this as something different from what we're doing in mindfulness practice. Mindfulness has the quality of care in it, just as our metta, this quality of loving kindness, also has the quality of awareness, of attentiveness. Joanna Macy, a wonderful Buddhist teacher and activist, in an interview she said, the Dharma path strikes me as profoundly erotic, which is not a common statement, (laughs) as you can probably tell. Buddhism teaches us to pay attention And if you mindfully put your attention on anything, you find love arising for whatever is. Anything. You put your attention on it and it reveals itself to you. Buddhism teaches us to pay attention and when we pay attention, we begin to fall in love with it. When we really fully let in something, ourselves, whatever whatever it is that we pay attention to, the heart begins to open. When we, when we meet it without resistance. So how would it be to meet our experience like that? To meet ourselves, to meet our bodies. How would it be to do your yoga practice like that? Where you had that fineness of attention that also had that open-heartedness that allowed you to fall in love, in a way, with your own body to feel that sense of wonder or mystery, that we can even move the body, you know? Janice Aran will say, okay, now we're gonna do downward dog, and somehow, miraculously, our body gets into downward dog. It's an amazing feat if we actually pay attention to all the subtle movements and muscles and alignment and balance that has to happen, and we do it quite effortlessly. So one way of looking at our practice, one way of looking at insight, understanding, cultivation of wisdom, understanding interconnectedness, all the different things that we cultivate in our Dharma practice, is they really all lead to the opening of our hearts. The Buddha once said, liberation is the sure, liberation is the sure heart's release that our practice leads uh, to an opening, a softening, connecting of the heart. And the heart of this quality of metta is a friendliness, a friendliness with life, friendliness with ourselves, friendliness with experience. And like many things in Buddhist practice, the Buddha was very idealistic and set very high ideals for these qualities we can develop. If you read the Loving Kindness Sutta, he talks about cherishing all beings with a boundless loving heart. How many of us walk around cherishing all beings with a boundless loving heart? He says, as as a mother protects her child, her only child, so we cultivate that same attitude towards all beings. That's quite a statement, to, to meet all beings with that same loving heart uh, as, as a mother's love. 
So now here comes this quote that I was, um, this poem that I was reading the beginning of. This is from Hafiz. He was also speaking to this quality, this the boundless quality. Even after all this time, the sun never says to the earth, you owe me. <laughs> Look what happens with a love like that. It lights the whole sky. So our heart, when it's boundless, the, the quality of matter which distinguishes uh, distinguish it from the, the, the love that we normally think about. In our culture, love is usually associated with some form of attachment. I love you if you'll love me. Some kind of condition that's often placed on it. Metta is a completely unconditioned response of the heart that loves or cares without necessarily wanting anything back in return. There's a, there was a monk who passed away this year, Mahagoshananda, who was the supreme patriarch of the Cambodian uh, Buddhist community um, after the genocide that happened there. And um, a friend of mine was studying in a monastery in Thailand at the same time that um, Mahagosananda was also doing his practice years. And he, he lived in a little hut uh, this was at Achandamadaro's monastery in southern Thailand. And uh, while my friend was uh, practicing there, Mahagosananda lived there for three years and pretty much stayed in his hut the whole three years. He'd come out for food, but basically stayed in his hut and practiced. And one day my friend went into his hut, and the hut was pasted with all kinds of Buddhist uh, wisdom statements and quotes from the Buddha and some of the lists and um, and my friend asked him why he didn't go out practice outside of his hut, why he didn't join in with the the, the monastic community and, and he basically said everything I need to know and everything I need to understand I can understand within this mind body I don't need to go anywhere to understand the world because it's all right here and so that's how he did his practice. Then when the Khmer Rouge uh, were driven out of Cambodia and the news came out that there'd been a huge genocide, he decided to leave uh, the monastery in Thailand, go back to Cambodia and help try and rebuild uh, the, the Buddhist community and also help bring about some um, peacemaking because there's such a lot of conflict and grief and trauma in the country. So he went back there, and I think there were 600,000 monks before the genocide, and there was about 3,000 who were left. And he began to um, just walk around through uh, war-torn areas, places where there was a lot of landmines, where you could barely uh, walk a foot either side of the trail without um, the risk of having there being landmines. And he'd go into the refugee camps, um, and the people were terrified because um, if, if they were known to have an affiliation with Buddhism uh, during the um, Cultural Revolution, they would be killed. And so there's a lot of fear about people reclaiming their Buddhist heritage and, and, and feeling safe enough to attend a teaching of a monk. And so he began to do these um, peace walks between various um, refugee camps. And he uh, would primarily give one teaching um, he, would t he would use the statement that the Buddha uh, is famous for saying, hatred never ceases with hatred, 
Only love dispels hate. This is the eternal law. So this is somebody who lost uh, all 17 of his relatives and um, also lost many of his friends and colleagues and teachers in the tradition. And yet he was able to go so deeply within himself, draw so deeply on his practice. And he saw this this country had been torn apart by hatred, by violence, by oppression. And that love was really the only healing response. And so he'd often give these um, he'd often give these discourses where he would just sit in silence, and then he would chant this um, this particular phrase: "Hatred never ceases with hatred; only love dispels hate." This is the eternal law. And slowly, people would begin chanting this phrase. So I'm saying that story is, um, I'm always very touched by his life. If you read about his life, it's, it's a very powerful, inspiring uh, life. And he was a person who radiated this quality of loving kindness, this, this quality of unconditional care and bounty of the heart. And at the same time, this quality of metta is also very simple. It's very ordinary, it's very innate to every single one of us. It's a simple feeling of kindness, the feeling of the natural feeling of care, of connection, the sense of empathy, the sense of goodwill, the spirit of non-harming, which is really the essence of all the, the precepts that we took at the beginning of the retreat. And the world and this retreat and everything else that happens in the human world functions without, with this quality of metta. Just a simple act of looking out for each other, for caring, for holding a door open. Simple acts of kindness. They all happen through this quality of metta. I was reading this wonderful book early in the year called Shantaram. It's a, um, it's a book about this man who uh, escapes from prison in Australia and ends up moving into the slums in Bombay. Um, and it's, it's a beautiful book in that it really describes the, the, the texture and the richness and the complexity of life in India, particularly in, in the slums in, in Bombay where he was living. And he was living in this particular slum that was part of a building site for a big construction project. And there was about 20,000 people living in what he thinks is about a square mile uh, in various um, pretty dilapidated shanty uh, structures. And, and he would often ask the question, how, how do these people live so... I mean, most, most families had a six-by-six six room. That was, that was the max allotment for a family, and it made, the family may have had ten people in it. And he often asked himself, why don't people go crazy? If this was Australia where he grew up, or this was you know, France or America or something, can you imagine 20,000 people packed into a square mile, living, breathing 24 hours a day? We'd kill each other. You know, we'd, be, you know, we'd, just, we'd drive each other up the wall with our space, space issues and our quiet issues and our need for, you know, what issue? And he said what kept the camp together was the power of love that there was an incredible force of kindness and friendship, and people really looked out for each other. 
when there was a fire would go through the, the, the slum or floods or sickness, people would, people would rally, people would bring things, people would share medicine or food. Or... So this quality is innate to us. When given the chance, the heart naturally wants to come forward. I notice for myself and also when people come here, I, I teach a lot of meditation retreats in the wilderness, but it's the same here. I notice that what most elicits this quality, this innate spontaneity of kindness or care, uh, is being out in nature. And I'm wondering how many of you feel or connect with a sense of that sense of the, the heartfulness, the kindness, care, when you're walking around, when you see the little baby deers, the little white spotted, cutesy, cutesy little things, <laughs> or the the uh, swallows out by the bathrooms there, building their little nest, and sometimes you can see the babies and they're kind of quivering and shaking. The heart naturally, what do we do? We, we naturally respond with that, you know, almost a breathless love, you know, care, kindness, appreciation. We don't have to, we have to go, okay, now I'm going to practice medicine. May that swallow be happy. May that swallow be healthy. <laughs> May it be peaceful. That's all extra. We do that when, when, when we're not nat- naturally connected with that. But so easily, it doesn't take much for that heart to be touched. I was just closing up the windows. I'm staying down in the trailer down, down the hill. And I closed the windows, and I noticed I trapped in a couple of moths. And it was just a natural, it was like, oh, oh no, I've trapped the moths. They were trapped between the window and the screen. And it just, you know, it was just a natural response. Oh, I have to release the moths. It wasn't like, hmm, shall I practice matter? And then actually, may your male beings be free. Just the heart moves that way. So it's innate to who we are, and it's really important to remember that. Sometimes we can get so fixated on qualities in ourselves that are, that are difficult or painful or things we don't like about ourselves. And the qualities of the heart, um, these more beautiful qualities, can seem somewhat out of reach or obscured. And it really is a question of them just being obscured. They don't actually disappear. We may just disconnect with them. There's a line from Suzuki Roshi. One said, you are completely perfect just as you are. You are completely perfect just as you are. Just let that settle in. You're completely perfect just as you are. And we could all do with a little improvement. (laughs) But he starts with the line, you are completely perfect just as you are. Which is quite different from the way we look at ourselves. I'll be perfect when I do this, 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 and this. So I I use that phrase because there's part of the the Brahma Vihara practices is their bhavana practices, their Bhavana means cultivation. And so we cultivate these qualities of the heart in our practice. We cultivate loving kindness. We cultivate generosity. We cultivate compassion. And we all have need and room for capacity to grow, to grow the heart. So one of the ways we do that with a meta practice is we use phrases. Some of you may know the phrases of phrases that express or express our intention, our wish for happiness for ourselves and for others. 
may I or you be safe, be healthy, be happy, live with ease. But metta is also an attitude. It's an orientation towards experience. It's a way, and we can, we can just, as we call attention to anything, it's one of the mysteries of the mind, when we call attention to something, call attention to a quality, quite often, naturally, it comes forth of its own accord. So if we recollect the quality of metta, remember, remember to have an attitude or an orientation of kindness, Sometimes that brings that forth in our practice or in our life. And again, when I think about doing asana practice and um, bringing in this quality of metta, of kindness, I often reflect on the times that I've strained myself or hurt myself or, you know, done stuff in, in my yoga practice that's actually made me end up feeling worse than I, when I started. Um, it, usually prob- it usually often is derived from the fact that I wasn't being sensitive and attuned and kind with my body, that I was pushing the limitations, that I was overriding the limitations of my body. So just so as you're doing the asana practice, just as you're doing any practice here, the sitting and the walking, just ask what it, what it would be for you to bring in the quality, the spirit, of kindness. When I first started um, my practice some years ago, 20, 25 years ago, uh, I was about 19 and had a lot of... Uh, anger and self-hatred and uh, very difficult, uh, painful relationship with myself. And the, one the practice that I was first given was the meta practice. And I did that for a year as a, as a way of sort of experiment of seeing if this stuff works. And, and then after that, did it continuously for a long time and then done several long retreats. And lo and behold, I found that it worked. Just like many of these practices, they work. That the, the iceberg, the hardness in my heart towards myself began to soften. It wasn't overnight. Uh, I haven't found any um, quick, immediate pills to um, overturn years of uh, habit or negative attitude. But it began to replace the negativity I had towards myself. And I've seen that with, with working with countless people. I teach a lot of meta retreats. And I've seen how much people transform, especially over the years when people come back to retreat after retreat. <laughs> or they transform their relationships with, with people that they find difficult by simply orienting, uh, cultivating, inviting this quality of meta into those relationships. And one particular way that we can do that one of the proximate causes for metta is the um, reflecting on the good qualities, the goodness of whoever it is that we're wishing metta for. So, you know, so often when we, our lens that we look at ourselves in the world is we're often looking at the faults. We're looking at what's wrong, what's deficient, what's negative. I mean, how many times have you been sitting in the dining room or you're sitting and you're watching people come and go and you're probably not sitting there going, wow, 
what a unique, wonderful human being. You know, and the mind isn't necessarily turning to the goodness and the good qualities. We're often judging. Oh, the person walks too fast, they walk too slow, they eat too fast, they eat too slow, they sit too, too still, they're too noisy, they, too, they move too much. How would it be if we practice cultivating this habit of seeing the goodness in others, in seeing the good qualities, which is not denying the reality of other things that might be there? How would the world be if we lived in a world where we all saw each other's goodness and good qualities? There's a story um, that kind of amplify, exemplifies what this might be like. There's a, there's a the story goes, uh, there's a town in an old fortified town uh, in the middle of the desert. And uh, there's a gatekeeper who controls, who leaves and enters the, the city. And he always asks a question for those people who are freshly arriving from another place. And the question he asks them is, oh, no, sorry, oh, let me backtrack. Um, <laughs> <laughs> delete that thought. <laughs> So this family arrives from, from a distant city and they ask the gatekeeper, ah, so what's this city like? And the gatekeeper always asks this question. He says, well, how is it in, your, how is it in the town that you just left? And this family, the man spoke to him and said, oh, town that we left, oh, it was terrible. The people were mean, they were, they were violent, they were aggressive, they were so negative and mean-spirited. And, um, and the gatekeeper said, well, you'll probably find the people a bit like that here then. And he lets them in. And next family shows up. And they ask the same question. So what are the people like here? And the gatekeeper says, well, how are the people like, what were they like in, your, in the town that you just left? Oh, they were wonderful. They were so warm and generous and caring. They're so kind and they really looked out for each other. And the gatekeeper said, well, you'll probably find the people here a bit like that. And so whatever attitude that we're looking at the world, so often that's what we'll see and that's what we'll actually experience. So if the quality of metta is an innate quality to the heart, quality of kindness, of care, how is it that we're not dripping in it? How come we're not saturated and just gushing with it all the time? And that's a good question to ask yourselves. What is it that obscures this quality? If it's innate quality to the heart, kindness, care, what is it that gets in the way? And we all have our own particular flavor. We all have our own conditioning, our own um, messages we may have received. Um, views about ourselves, things that we've taken on, self-views that can diminish this quality, this brightness. Or we have developed habit, habits of negativity, habits of looking at ourselves with a lot of judgment, with a lot of um, criticism or comparing. And this practice of metta of loving-kindness, like most practices, has to begin with 
our relationship with ourselves. That the, to the extent that we're closed and shut down to ourselves, to the extent that will place a limitation on the movement of our heart outwards to others. Oscar Wilde once said, to love oneself is the beginning of a lifelong love affair. Or as my, uh, one of my teachers used to say, marry the one that will never leave you. And the Buddha said something not dissimilar when he was talking about the practice of metta and the, 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 the importance of um, wishing metta for ourselves. He said, the whole world we travel with our thoughts, finding nowhere anyone as precious as one's own self. Since each and every person is so precious to themselves, let the self-respecting harm no other being. So he says, the whole world we travel with our thoughts and we find no one nowhere as precious or more worthy of our own loving kindness as ourselves. That's quite a statement. And that's where we begin the practice. Turning that attitude of kindness, looking at our own goodness, our own good qualities. And working with the obstacles. You know, the, the biggest obstacle I see to that kind, positive self-regard is the inner critic. The judge, the superego, has many different names. Anybody no- notice a little critic going on this retreat? A little self-bashing, a little giving yourselves a hard time. Some very strong hands were raised there. The mind that's, you know, that's never... that that's very uncompromising in its criticism and its uh, high standards and its ruthlessness and also its repetitiveness. You notice how repetitive the critic is? Like, enough already. Like, how many times do I have to hear I'm a bad meditator or I'm a bad yogi or I can't concentrate or I'm hopeless or I'm a bad person or I'm never going to get my shit together or whatever the story is. And the judge is, is powerful to the extent that we give it power, to the extent that we listen to it and we give it authority. There's a bumper sticker that says, don't believe everything that you think. That particularly <laughs> applies to the inner critic. Don't believe a word of it. It's generally a very distorted, biased, negative view. So as you go through the days here, you can invite this quality of matter. Begin to reflect on your good qualities. Or if you're looking at somebody else, to reflect on their goodness, to sense their goodness. You can practice saying the phrases, and at some point during the retreat, we'll, we'll lead a guided metta meditation, where we just need a simple repetition of phrases. May I be well, may I be happy, may I be peaceful. Or we can practice stealth metta, where you wish that to other people, you're sitting in the dining room and you're eating your oatmeal and you're looking at somebody who's eating their oatmeal and may you be happy. May you enjoy your oatmeal. <laughs> may you really enjoy your oatmeal. Or you see somebody looks a little sad, oh, may you be happy. May you be at ease. May you be comforted. So the third quality, um, third Brahma Vihara, 
is the quality of compassion, karuna. Again, a natural quality in the heart is that it's the heart's response. The heart that's open is a natural response to pain. When we see someone suffering, when we hear somebody crying in the meditation hall, when we see somebody who looks in pain, when we hear some news of somebody who's sick or ill, it's that natural response of the heart to care, to feel that tenderness. The Buddha talked about it as a quivering of the heart in response to pain. And again, it's natural. It, it's, it doesn't take a huge amount of practice to cultivate. It's so often spontaneous. What distinguishes uh, compassion is it's also imbued with this quality of equanimity. So it allows us to turn towards suffering, turn towards pain, without being so overwhelmed by it or crushed by it. It allows us to meet the truth of suffering without resisting the suffering. So often we hear about pain or suffering and we, we, we try to resist the truth of it. It's not fair, this shouldn't be happening, I don't want it to be happening. That's resistance. And equanimity allows us to go, oh yeah, there is suffering in this world. There is suffering having a body. There is suffering in the political, social, economic systems that we live in. So it allows us to meet the suffering of the world without being overwhelmed. So when we hear about what's happening to the earth, or we hear about the loss of species, or we hear about the latest casualties in Iraq, or in Darfur, or in Afghanistan, there's not a resistance to the truth of what's happening. And at the same time, we're feeling the pain. There's an empathic, resonant response to the suffering. Compassion means to feel the suffering of another. And again, I want to speak to that innate quality of compassion. That when you hear the news of some disaster or a friend in distress, that there's a Unless we're close to to facing the pain in ourselves, which is the greatest obstacle to compassion, then there'll be openness. There'll be meeting that compassion, meeting that suffering, sorry, with a kind response. This This is what Gary Larson has to say about compassion. So there's a picture of um, Satan, and he's happily at home in hell, and he's just coming out of the fiery room behind him, and there's a there's a bunch of new people arrived, new arrivals to hell, and they're all sitting there looking quite unhappy, and the devil's also looking very unhappy, and he's shouting, "Mom, no!" And underneath there's a caption. Despite his repeated efforts to explain things to her, Satan could never dissuade his mother from offering cookies and milk to the accursed. <laughs> So she's there with a little tray of cookies and milk. That's the innate 
spontaneity of compassion. What can I say? Even in hell. And compassion's also not just a feeling, but it's a verb. It's a, it's a, it's a movement of the heart. It's a wish not just to feel the suffering of another, but actually to, to relieve it, to want to engage in some way to relieve suffering. This is uh, also from Ryokan, the poet I quoted earlier. When I think about the misery of those in this world, their sadness becomes mine. Oh, that my monk's robe were wide enough to gather up all the suffering people in this floating world. Nothing makes me more happy than Buddha Amida's vow to save everyone. He also writes poems about when he's thinking about the suffering in the world and he wakes up, comes out of his meditation and his sleeve of his robe is wet with tears. And here's this man who's really solitary, mostly, doing his meditation practice and yet at the same time have, have cultivating this vast ocean of compassion. Compassion is also can be very spontaneous. I know when Katrina happened uh, down in New Orleans, a friend of mine had a, he has this really groovy, um, like, it's like a camper van, but it's like, it's a designer camper van. It's pretty large and it's very high tech, but it's very big. And as soon as he heard it, he um, bought a bunch of food, a bunch of blankets, and drove down to New Orleans. And just a natural response. He barely thought about what he was doing. He just heard the news, was so overwhelmed by the, the pain, and saw what the, the lack of response that was happening that he just loaded up his van and drove down there. It was such a beautiful movement of the heart. I also want to add that sometimes we, we hear that word compassion is talked about a lot and it can sometimes have that flavor of being a little grand or a little grandiose. Um, but it's really that simple quality of care, of kindness, of connection. Even Mother Teresa said, we can't do any great things, we can only do small things with great love. So the practice of compassion is just very small meeting what's in front of us. And the last thing I want to say about compassion is it also doesn't necessarily need to be look in a way that's... Sometimes these qualities are presented, the qualities of the heart, and they, some people might say, well, they're a little kind of softy-softy. They're a little kind of you know, namby-pamby. You know, be love and kind and you know, it's all very well, but what about the suffering and the pain in the world? And... People are just going to walk all over you if your heart's that open. So I want to read something from Martin Luther King, who really is one of the modern exemplaries of this quality of fierce compassion that's, that's able to meet great suffering. I've seen too much hate to want to hate myself. And I've seen hate on the faces of too many white sheriffs, too many white citizens, counselors, and too many clansmen of the South to want to hate myself. And every time I see it, I say to myself, hate is too great a burden to bear. Somehow we must be able to stand up before our most bitter opponents and say, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We will meet your physical force with soul force. 
do to us what you will, and we will, st we will still love you. Send your propaganda agents around the country and make it appear that we are not fit culturally and otherwise for integration, but we'll still love you. But be assured that we'll wear you down by our capacity to suffer. And one day we will win our freedom. We will not only win freedom for ourselves, we will so appeal to your heart and conscience that we will win you in the process. And our victory will be a double victory. So briefly, I just want to touch on the last of the Brahma Viharas, which is the quality of, of mudita, uh, the appreciative joy, which is the quality of joy, joy or the gladness in the heart that delights in the happiness and the joy of others. It's, the, it's a really beautiful quality that when it sees someone or something that's happy, that's successful, that's joyful, uh, it celebrates that joy. It celebrates that success. It celebrates that happiness. It delights in it. It's a very um, exquisite quality of the mind. The Buddha said this was the most rare quality of the Brahma Viharas, the rare quality in the human mind. And he said it's a, it's a he called it the mind deliverance of gladness because it liberates the mind from negative forces. It's the mind that can appreciate that can appreciate what we have, that can appreciate abundance, that can appreciate beauty, that can appreciate nature. It's the opposite of a mind that's in scarcity or in competition. It's a, it's a quality of mind that can appreciate the mystery of life, that this body we have contained of a trillion cells, each, each cell is performing 5,000 things, functions a second. So that's five quintillion things are happening right now in this moment. Did you catch it? <laughs> and it just happened again. <laughs> five quintillion things happening in this body. It's, just, it's about apparently the number of stars in the universe. What a mystery it is to be alive, to be awake. We have to be awake to enjoy this feast of life. One of my favorite quotes, um, this is from uh, uh, the poet, the English poet Blake, um, apparently it's from his wife, who says something like, oh, I miss my husband so, he is so often in paradise. <laughs> Blake's the poet who wrote, he who kisses the joy as it flies, lives in eternity's sunrise. He who binds to himself a joy does the winged life destroy. He was very ecstatic poet and being. Oh, I miss my husband so he is so often in paradise. I just love that. <laughs> or Mary Oliver, who's also a more contemporary version of that capacity to appreciate when she says in the poem, When Death Comes, I want to say when it's all over that all my life I was a bride married to amazement. I was the bridegroom taking the world into my arms. And if any of you know her poetry, which I'm sure many of you do, she does. The Dalai Lama says that mudita, appreciative joy, increases our possibility of happiness by six billion to one. <laughs> so the odds are very good. So again, just, last, just to finish, why is it that we don't hang out with those qualities, with that quality? 
How is it that we contract? You know, just, just, as, just to be curious about what gets in the way. For some of us, it's, um, there's, there's jealousy or envy. We want what the other person has. We think we don't have it, or we think we can't get it. We have some fear that happiness is a limited resource, and we think if they have a lot of it over there, then there's not going to be much for us left over here, so I want some of it. Or we get into comparing and judging, oh, we should be like that, we should be that happy. Or sometimes we judge what they're happy about. I have some friends who love going to Disneyland, and they come back really excited and happy. <laughs> it's hard for me to really fully get into the mood of the thing, because <laughs> it's not really my cup of tea, you know. <laughs> Anyhow. Oh, when Howie's telling me about, you know, how amazing Tiger Woods was playing golf, and, um, I mean, I can be happy for Howie, but <laughs> golf's not my thing, so it's, it limits the mudita. <laughs> Sorry, Howie. No excuses. No excuses. <laughs> So just to close by saying that all of these qualities, equanimity, loving-kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, they are within us. They are within you. They are within your hearts. And even if they're obscured, even if they feel very remote, we get inklings of them. We get whispers. And so our practice, like much of practice, is we're learning to uh, peel away the clouds, peel away the obscurations, to what gets in the way of us both seeing our true nature, the true nature of our heart, but also what gets in the way of fully embodying and expressing it. So let's sit together for a minute. Just sense into your heart. Just notice if the qualities are here. Equanimity, kindness. Compassion. Appreciative joy. This talk was given by Mark Coleman at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on June 21, 2007. It is an offering.